Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Today we are going to read from a letter addressed to the Apostle Paul's young helper, Timothy. In this letter, Paul is an older man near death. His first court hearing has taken place and he is now a prisoner waiting for a second hearing and expecting to die. Today's text may be the last paragraph of the last letter the Apostle ever wrote. The many names you will hear are men and women who have been a part of Paul's ministry team. Listen now for God's word as it comes to us from 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to begin with the sixth verse. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in my ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. But you also must be aware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom, to the Lord be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth. Trophimus I left ill in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Lydens and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The opening ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics, if you got a chance to watch it, was both exhilarating and a bit restrained at the same time. You'd think we would be used to this kind of emotional seesaw 16 months into a pandemic but it was particularly striking on the world stage. Incredible animation and live video showed empty cityscapes. 
athletes training in solitude, and a quiet, masked parade of nations. We saw a hovering globe made up of pinpoints of light from 1,800 drones. We saw a traditional Japanese dance to ward off evil and misfortune, a moving torch relay involving athletes, healthcare workers, and children representing regions of Japan devastated by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. And finally, the tennis star Naomi Osaka lighting the Olympic cauldron atop a stylized Mount Fuji powered for the first time by hydrogen. These were small victories and moments of celebration even before any medal or victor's crown. Yet we couldn't help being reminded of the continuing danger of this pandemic, that it is not over, that it is not receding everywhere equally, and that some in the host city did not want the games at all. I felt empathy for the news anchors who surely struggled to set the right tone to focus on the right things, to meet the moment but not bum out the audience. It was, at the same time, the world coming together and a world still cautiously held apart, both celebration and grief. I know the feeling. Throughout the pandemic, we have tried to express both hopefulness and lament from the Fairmount pulpit. Praise for technology but missing real faces in front of us. Praise for writing letters, but missing holding hands. Praise for good health, but we know many who suffer. Praise for commitment to become anti-racist, even as we know we have so far to go. And now, in this new hybrid worship model, when some of us are together in person, the feelings can be overwhelming. I have felt cautious hope exhilaration, and relief in this sanctuary lately, but I have also felt sadness and doubt from time to time. I miss seeing more of the children, most of whom can't get vaccinated if they are under 12. I wonder about those whose Sunday morning habits are different now and don't include church. I miss our friends who are immune-compromised, three to four percent of the population for whom the vaccines may not be fully effective. They can't yet show up in this space when the danger for them feels too real. And while some move closer to normal with travel and theater and live music and restaurants and back to church and family reunions, others may feel left behind. We need to be inclusive of our in-person and online faith communities but I can't do that alone. I won't always meet the moment with just the right tone and focus. Sometimes I can't even find my microphone before the service begins, so let's face it, it's not gonna be perfect when I'm up here. I don't know what the experience is like in the pews or on the screen, which is why Lindsay is in the pews today to help us be more empathetic and, and people are online and when I'm preaching, I can't greet the ones online. And maybe you can't either, but somebody out there from Fairmount can say hello to everybody worshiping online and make them feel part of what is going on here today. We need you, church. We need you in so many ways, church, to be reaching out to each other, to listen for the needs within and outside our faith community, to pray for each other. And then I, 
I'm just going to say it. We need people to step up. We need people to respond and take leadership in making the love of Christ more real to those sitting here and those watching at home. We are a congregation that's full of leaders, and so many people are doing so many things. But we need more. We need someone who's going to take the helm of Stephen's ministry. We need somebody who's going to lead a campaign for breaking new ground, which builds and renovates houses for people in need in Cleveland. We need people to to claim the gifts they have, and we need the church to be the church more, I think, than ever before because of the complexity of ministry in this time and this pace. This is our second Sunday of exploring the question, what do you need? So I figured I would throw those few things out there if you're asking. That's what we need right now. Talk to Lindsay or myself if you are willing to step up in some way. I know many of you are. Last Sunday, we looked at Job's suffering and the empathy from his friends. Today, we're going to look at Paul, the one who was converted on the road to Damascus, the one who persecuted Christians and later was persecuted himself. Using athletic imagery appropriate for the spiritual Olympics Paul has endured, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And from now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have longed for his appearing. Do you hear the gratitude and the sadness in the same moment the victory, the crown of righteousness, and the defeat, the strength, and the weakness, all the paradoxes of being human. And maybe because Paul is so vulnerable right here, I always feel a little uncomfortable reading this section of Scripture. It feels so personal, so different from the letters to the congregations in Philippi or Corinth or Galatia. It's like we're reading his diary, or if this ever has happened to you, like you've been blind copied on an email you weren't supposed to see. That's what it feels like here. Paul experiencing so many hardships, shipwreck, persecution, imprisonment more than once, and his suffering, his suffering didn't shut down his faith. It stretched his faith It stretched his embrace of God's forgiveness. It enabled him to forgive others. Lauren Wright Pittman, who's one of the commentators we're using in this series, and her artwork is in your bulletin, says that now near the end of his life, Paul's actions have returned to him. While in a position of power as Saul, he persecuted people of faith, and now he sits alone, beaten, and in prison for his own beliefs, and it would make sense to me, she says, that Paul would be in turmoil, that he would be filled with guilt for his former actions, troubled with resentment. He lists the people who have abandoned him, It reminds me of an old Seinfeld episode. Did anyone watch that? We watched it when the kids were little. It's supposed to be a show about nothing, but I'm so often reminded of episodes. There was one about a fictional holiday called Festivus. And Festivus includes practices such as feats of strength, which my boys pretty much have down, and the airing of grievances, in which each person tells everyone else all the ways they have disappointed them over the past year. It's really funny when you see it on the episode. And that clearing of the air is meant to be therapeutic. But for anyone who has been in a family or part of a church community, it is also 
familiar. We are good at holding on to resentment, sometimes even hatred over grievances long past. We are not so good at letting them go. As forgiven as we are, we sometimes struggle to forgive others or ourselves. Nelson Mandela once said that hatred is like drinking poison and then waiting for it to kill your enemy. And I think it's the same way with refusing to forgive. So Paul chooses another way. He doesn't do an airing of grievances at a Festivus dinner, but a proclamation of grace. He has been transformed by the forgiveness of God, and he's not going back. His freedom of spirit means too much, too much for him now, especially now. So after expressing his hurt at being abandoned and too alone, he says, may it not be counted against them. He can offer that forgiveness because of the forgiveness he has received by the work of Jesus Christ, and that enables him to not be afraid to see his own needs, which are needs for companionship and comfort, and not for vengeance. Also, the time is short. If he chooses bitterness, he's not free to be about what the early church and the young disciples really need. They need leadership, not worn-out tales of being done wrong. They need a model of courageous vulnerability, honest enough to say, here's what I need. This apostle who has preached God's power revealed, do you remember this? Revealed not in human strength, not in perfection, but in human weakness. That's where God's power is revealed. He is not afraid to lean on his young friend Timothy, and he says, you hear it in the midst of all those names. You hear his plea. Paul says, do your best to come to me. I need to see you now. The time of my departure has come. I don't think I will survive another winter in this prison. Bring my cloak, it's cold in this cell, and bring my books. He needs companionship, and he needs it quickly. He needs his cloak to wrap around his body, and he needs books for his imagination, which is also a need of many prisoners. He needs parchments to share the proclamation of grace, of victory and defeat, of strength and weakness, all these paradoxes of being human. He could have passed on bitterness and resentment to Timothy. But instead, he points to God's provision, the Lord gave me strength. Hazrat Inayat Khan said, God breaks the heart again and again until it stays open. When we are faced with the suffering and the pain of this world and in our lives, we have two choices. We can let our hearts stretch and expand to allow capacity to hold both the agony and the beauty of living in this world in touch with the needs of others and our own needs, or we can pull the shield over the vulnerable center. You can break or you can burrow. I'm reading a book called Beauty in the Breaking, a memoir by Michelle Harper, and it's about her life as a black woman who is an emergency room doctor and how 
Her work overlaps with the complexities of life, the hurt, the healing, the race and gender issues, the justice and hope. In the introduction to the book, she says, from childhood to now, I have been broken many times, and I suspect most people have. In practicing the Japanese art of kintsukuroi, one repairs broken pottery by filling in the cracks with gold, silver, or platinum. The choice to highlight the breaks with precious metals not only acknowledges them, but also pays tribute to the vessel that has been torn apart by the mutability of life. The previously broken object is considered more beautiful for its imperfections. In life, too, even greater brilliance can be found after the mending. As I think about Paul in that prison long ago and how broken he must have felt and how mended the work of God was within him, I think also about prisoners in other places. Some of them who've been wrongly accused, others who received sentences too harsh for the crime, some like our resident Jonas who were imprisoned simply for seeking asylum from life-threatening dangers in their own countries. With God's help and those willing to ask them, what do you need? All the broken places can become beautiful. And I think about others whom the world considers broken, who suffer from addictions or mental illness or physical disability that leave them standing on the outside of everyday experiences that most of us take for granted. They've learned to say what they need. I need a sponsor. I need help getting up the stairs. I need rehab. I need to rest. I need a service animal. I need you to see me, to understand, to not feel sorry for me. I need to be connected. I need forgiveness. I need to forgive. I need God. And I often wonder if it is we who are able-bodied and neurotypical and privileged in all sorts of other ways, if we are the ones who have the mistaken audacity to believe the highest goal of life is to keep the vessel uncracked, to do it all on our own, to not need anyone or anything else, whether we are the ones who are most impoverished and most imprisoned by our own hubris. Paul is in prison, but he is free. He is dying, and he is living. He has a sinful past, and he is forgiven. He reaches out for comfort and companionship and pleads that Timothy come before winter. We don't have forever here in life, my friends. If there is something good that God is calling you to do, the time is now. If there is someone in need God is calling you to help, the time is now. If there is something in you that is resisting grace even as you long for grace, the time is now. Don't wait. God knows your needs, but in the asking, you admit your humility, your imprisonment to the things of this world, and your mistaken desire to arrive before God, having done it all on your own. There is another way. Come to Jesus. 
Come before you get too jaded or bitter. Come while your heart is still broken and open at the same time. Come while you still believe it is possible for God to fill the cracks in the vessel of your life with the precious metal of amazing grace, so much more beautiful than ever before. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.